0: Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, Crosspoint. And good morning to those of you who are joining us online. Thanks for tuning in with us this morning. As we worship together hey uh before we dive into our teaching series big hairy awesome announcement this morning these two amazing women have worked very hard these past couple of months in preparing for their accreditation interviews with the christian and missionary alliance denomination they have studied themselves uh, study to demonstrate that they are workers unto God. They've been approved. Uh, they went through a, a rigorous interview this past week, and I am just so delighted to announce that they passed with flying covers, uh, colors, and they can now bear the mantle of being called pastors. Pastor Delaney and Pastor Mander, they're back there. Woo, 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 woo. Good job. Congratulations. Well done. I, I, I got to sit in on the uh, interviews with them, and uh, they just did such a great job. I was so very proud of both of them. Uh, Also, just a reminder, today, uh, Q&A is going to happen after the gathering. take about 10 minutes to do that. The number's up on screen. As well, if you are looking for notes, and I recommend you have notes this morning if you can. We we can't print paper ones because of COVID, but if you have digital access, thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes, because you're going to need them this morning because today we are launching a new teaching series about personal identity and and this is a huge topic and there's a lot of ground to cover um, but because of this we're only gonna be hitting on some of the major themes of personal identity uh, so we're gonna be like a rock that's kind of skipping across an ocean of information um, I also want to warn you in advance that this is a thinking series So in other words, uh, this is going to be a little bit different than a lot of series that we go through. In other words, there's going to be, I'm going to invite you to put on your thinking hats, uh, your studious hats as we walk through this uh, teaching series together. It's going to be kind of framed after Jesus' model of teaching. Jesus, if you read uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he would often say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. That's what we're going to be doing as we walk through this series. So a large part of it is going to begin with, you've heard that it was said in the cultural conversation, But God says to you this. So that's how we're going to be framing it. Now, to make sure we're all on the same page, let me answer a couple of questions uh, this morning. Here's the first question. What do we mean by personal identity? Well, your personal identity is your understanding of who you are. So it's your sense of being. It's, it's, It's how you see yourself. Your sense of self is really a composite sketch of many different aspects in your life. It is the sum total of a whole bunch of different factors that come together to make up who you are. So factors like your physical body, or your relationships, or your ethnicity, or your experiences, or your age, or your beliefs, and so on, and so on, and so on. All of these factors come together to create your personal identity or your self-identity. So let me ask you this question this morning. Right off the top, as we talk about personal identity, who are you? If you were to think about and describe yourself to somebody else, what are those factors that you would use to define yourself? Who would you say you are? Who are you? Now the second question is just simply this. Why is your identity important? Okay? Well, first of all, let me just say this. Your your identity is actually a very powerful force in your life. Every one of us lives out of our identity. So it affects your relationships, it frames your actions, it fuels you, it motivates you. Your identity sets the agenda for your day. Your entire life is actually d- governed by and driven by your identity. But moreover, your identity is important because we are meaning makers and meaning seekers. Meaning makers and meaning seekers. You see, most people are looking for answers to the questions of life. Who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? And and more importantly, why do I actually matter? So we're always seeking for meaning. Now, some people are actively seeking. Some people are inactively seeking. You might even say unconsciously seeking. But we're all seeking for these answers all the same. We are meaning makers and meaning seekers. Now, in, uh, in recent times, there has been a strong move towards what's called expressive individualism, okay? That's a big word, and let me just say for for this morning, I'm going to be throwing out some words that might be a little bit unfamiliar to you, but bear with me. It's all going to come together in a collision that we know as Disney, okay? So... Um, what do I mean by expressive individualism? This is basically personal identity on steroids. It's the belief that the way to reach the highest good in life is through self-expression and through self-definition. Because here's the thing, we, we're individualists. We, we grew up in a culture of individualism. It goes all the way back hundreds of years to what's called the Enlightenment. And, and we believe that, as individualists, we believe that the highest good is individual freedom and happiness. I mean, if you could want anything in life, it's just simply to be free and to be happy, these are the highest goods. And so to find that, the expressive individualist will say, well, you gotta find that within yourself by looking into your feelings, by looking into your intuition and discover who you are, because that will lead ultimately to freedom and to happiness. So self-identity is something you find within yourself. Self-identity is not something that's imposed on you from outside of yourself. So it's from within, not from without. And in order to reach this, what the expressive individualist believes is that this often means breaking away from anything or anyone that's going to restrict my individualism. So it could be my, I mean, my family, it could be my religion, it could be authority figure, it could be politics, it could be healthcare, whatever. Anything that's going to restrict my individualism is bad, right? You shouldn't trust people or structures or institutions that define you. So your inner quest for identity and self-expression is yours. It doesn't belong to anybody else. And anybody who tries to restrict your freedom is either intolerant or unjust. Now, some of you are probably familiar with some of the more bumper sticker slogans that are out there in our culture. They're called um, aphorisms. And they just kind of reveal kind of the, the, the importance of this question of identity in our culture. So look at those. You can probably see some of them. Some of them you're familiar with. you, know, you do you. You know, live your truth, be true to yourself, follow your heart, etc., etc. Of course, what's interesting about these aphorisms is is that none of them can actually survive the scrutiny of what we call universalized principles. In other words, it's it's hard to say that any of these are true for all people at all time in every single circumstance. And yet we treat them that way, and we speak of them in in that way. So all you need to do is just take any one of those things for a test run in day to day life, and you realize that yeah, this isn't really true, or this can be a little bit ridiculous. So there's a YouTube video I watched uh, the other day that uh, did just this, uh, and they were talking about the living your truth slogan. Unfortunately, I can't show it this morning because uh, it's a little rough around the edges, not really suitable for Sunday morning life. Uh, But it it is funny the way that they do it. So, I mean, there's four or five uh, uh, college students sitting around in a circle, and, and they're trying to rationalize their absurd behavior through this slogan, live your truth. Right. So, I mean, uh, there's one guy who talks about, hey, I am a server in a restaurant, but I have never actually claimed my taxes. My dad's an accountant. He gave me around a way around that. And they go, yeah, live your truth. And then there's another girl. She says, uh, you know, that she's a flirt with everybody, even though she's in a committed relationship, but she flirts with everybody anyway. And they're like, yeah, live your truth. Right. And then someone says, well, I, I think COVID's a hoax. Live your truth. And other ones, I-, I voted for Donald Trump. Whoa, live your truth. And then finally, the last person says, I killed a guy live your truth. They live their truth anyway, right? Because that's the ridiculousness of the slogan. It cannot be applied in every single situation. So this is, this is expressive individualism, and it finds its way down into our everyday folklore within culture. So here's the question. Where did expressive individualism come from? Well, there are many who would say that this has emerged because of we have lost the vertical self. Now, what do I mean by the vertical self? Well, I'm going to borrow some terms from a guy named Mark Sayers. He wrote a book called The Vertical Self, right? And he talks about these, uh, these terms. And of course, he's borrowing it from somebody else, from a, a famous Canadian philosopher. But basically, your vertical self is this. It's your vision of yourself vertically as part of what we would call a transcendent reality. So in other words, uh, it's It's a belief in a spiritual or an eternal reality that's beyond yourself, beyond just this physical world that we live in. That's your vertical self. And so it's not a reality of our own making, instead it's a reality that is making us. So it's your identity in view and understanding of this is what's beyond, this transcendence. Now the horizontal self is your vision of yourself that's part of the imminent world around you, the near world. So the physical natural world with its structures and relationships and culture. But it's also a vision of yourself, an identity of yourself that's very inward. It's the identity that you find within yourself. So horizontal self is your view of identity in view of your imminence. Now here's the problem. When you remove the vertical self from your identity, you are faced with a desperate burden to create and find meaning in the horizontal world like I said remember we are meaning seekers and we are meaning creators but when you flatten the vertical self when you take away that which is transcendent in your world you essentially remove all higher purpose you eliminate all transcendent meanings and so what, what do we do in order to fill that gap because we're looking for meaning we're looking for that to do it we look for it in the horizontal plane And so we go through all sorts of misguided attempts to find significance here in this world. And this inevitably leads us towards expressive individualism. I'll explain it a little bit further. Where did the vertical self go? How did the vertical self disappear in our culture? Well, I could take hours to plot this out. Um, Unfortunately, I can only give you a brief summary. So let me give you two major contributors that has led us to this point that has eliminated the vertical self. Here's the first one. The first one is what we would know as secularism. So, secularism, we live in a secular age. Secularism is like this predominant worldview that's out there in our culture, which essentially says that people agree that religious belief is just one option among many. And, it, and not only that, but it's not, it's not only that, it's contestable, and oftentimes it's contested. So, in a secular age, in a secular culture, it's, it's just kind of a given, even within religious communities, that uh, your belief is just one option among many. And in most of human history... People believed, and I'm not talking like thousands of years of human history, people believed that our natural world was connected to something beyond. So this idea of secularism is very, very new in terms of human history. So because of this, we often believe that our social order, the way we live life, the way we do society and all of that, was governed by these higher principles, was governed by this transcendent reality. But many people assume that science and reason have essentially gotten rid of this this higher plane. Uh, They they believe that science and and, uh, reason have proven that this natural world is basically all that it is. But technically that's just another faith statement. That's for another time and another series that we've done before. Uh, But that's not necessarily so. But now because of this, what's happened is we've disconnected ourselves from this world beyond and we've been disenchanted with the transcendent. And so what's happened is there's this flattening of the vertical axis, and all we have is is what's around us. And remember this, I'm gonna keep coming back to this. We are meaning seekers, and we are meaning creators. So when we flatten the vertical axis, we no longer look for meaning beyond. And yet still, in this life, as good secularists, we have this nagging sense of loss. As meaning seekers. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls this the haunting of secularism. So we are still haunted by our own doubts because maybe there is something beyond, even though we've chosen to flatten the horizontal reality. So to deal with this loss, what do we do? We double down desperately trying to discover meaning in the world now, in the imminent. And we also try to find this meaning not only in the world around us, but we really try and find this meaning within ourselves. So, uh, uh, one way that we've seen this played out is on social media. If you uh, are on social media, you may not be. Good for you. Um, but we seek meaning by trying to run a personal public relations campaign. Not everybody does this. Some people use social media just to be social. Uh, but some people do uh, just that, public relations campaign. And to do this, what they end up doing is they exchange identity for imagery. So. Their public identity can never provide, however, the ultimate meaning that they're looking for on social media. Uh, I I wonder if any of you have heard of a a person named Asena O'Neill. A number of years ago, I think it was back like 2016, she was a a rising Instagram, Instagram star at just 18 years of age. In two years, she had built a career for herself. Just by posting pictures and posting videos of herself, she's an attractive young woman. And at that time, I mean, this is early in the days of Instagram, she basically had Instagram world dominance. She became a forerunner for people now who are doing the same thing that she did, she paved the way. But uh, she had over a half a million Instagram followers, which in today's standards is I mean, it's pretty high, but th- there's a lot higher. Uh, she had about 250,000 YouTube followers. She started this at the age of 16 and, and up to the age of 18. Her platform was so huge that she could make a living off of it, just through the advertising. She, she could make a living just by posting pictures and videos of herself. And then, one day, after just a couple of years of posting, at the age of 18, she announced to the world that she was going to drop it all. She was done. She wiped her social media accounts, she deleted everything, and she walked away. And people were like, what? What happened to a said O'Neal? Well, later on, she revealed in, in, to her followers that this increasing fame wasn't actually producing happiness in her is actually doing exactly the opposite. She was becoming lost in it. She was constantly seeking people's approval. She'd look at herself and she was disappointed with who she was. Now, she was becoming less authentic. She was becoming more miserable. And she was addicted to being liked on Instagram all the time. So let me just read a couple of excerpts from O'Senthal O'Neill's final statements. Here's what she said. She says, I fell in love with this idea that I could be of value to other people. It was a snowballing addiction to being liked by others. Yeah, a 16-year-old of Santa would have been like, girl, you have the dream life. So why did I feel so lost, lonely, and miserable? Social media had become my sole identity. I didn't even know who I was without it. And I can't tell you how free I feel without social media. Never again will I let a number define me. It suffocated me. Now, I'm not speaking out against social media by saying this, but I'm saying it is one example of many ways that on the horizontal plane, we can seek higher meaning. We can seek purpose and not find it, and this snowballing effect. And yet, meanwhile, we have this nagging sense of loss, this haunting of secularism as a meaning seeker on the horizontal plane. And I I guess I would ask you this morning, and I'm going to ask myself this, have you ever felt this in this life? how has the flattening of the vertical self in your world affected you so secularism is a major contributor what is the other major contributor i want to talk about this morning it's postmodernism again another heavy word i'm throwing out here what is postmodernism well postmodernism is essentially it's a philosophical movement that developed in the mid to late 20th century mostly in the 60s when it's reached its peak, and it's, it's growing since then. But it has become so widespread that it's become a cultural phenomenon. And most of us don't even know that it's all around us. Um, it's in our art, it's in our music, it's in our movies, it's in our media. If you are studying at a university or a college right now, you are steeped in postmodern thought, especially if you're in the arts or in the social sciences. Now, many people will say that we're not fully into postmodernity and that's true. I mean we're kind of still in modernity and we're into postmodernity. That doesn't matter. Listen, hey, it's hard to define this in one idea or statement. Okay, it really is. If you want a summary statement, it's really hard. But let me just describe what postmodernity modernity is by telling you about its mood, okay? There are three components to the postmodern mood this morning. Again, bear with me because we're getting to Disney, all right? Here we go. So the first part of this is deconstruction. What is deconstruction? It's simply this. Deconstruction is the idea that meaning or truth is perspectival. In other words, it's a matter of perspective. In other words, my experience of the world that I'm having right now is really just my interpretation. Your experience of the world that you're having right now is really just your interpretation. And because these are just our interpretations, it therefore means that everything is subject to interpretation. So there's this classic uh, scene in The Little Mermaid. This isn't the Disney I'm getting to. This is the the trailer to the Disney, okay? Um, There's this classic scene in The Little Mermaid where Ariel attends a dinner party in the human world. I don't know if you remember that scene, but she goes into into the human world. She's sitting around the table with humans. She's the transformed little mermaid, and she sees a fork, and she goes, oh, it's a dinglehopper. And then she starts combing her hair with the dinglehopper. I don't know if you remember that scene, right? Well, of course, to everybody around the table who are humans, they're like, this isn't a dinglehopper, you dingbat, no way. This is a a fork. You eat with it. You don't comb your hair with it. But her interpretation, it's a dinglehopper because where's she from? Under the sea. And when she was under the sea, it was called a dinglehopper because the confused seagull told her so. But then when she got into the human world, their interpretation of it is, what is it? Well, it's a fork and it's used for eating. Who was right? Exactly. Here's the other mood, uh, the other component of postmodernism. It's what we would say is, it's incredulous to metanarratives. That word incredulous just means they find it simply unbelievable. So they believe metanarratives are unbelievable. Now, metanarrative, it's just a fancy way of saying big story. So they're saying that, to, to say that there are big stories that explain the universe, that explain reality, is just unbelievable, no matter what it is, including science. So anything that tries to argue a big story based on reason should be suspect, and the reason why is it doesn't matter what your faith story is; every single faith story is a faith a, a big. Sorry, every single big story is a faith assumption. Therefore, you can't make that claim, which has actually led many people to abandon meta narratives altogether. Which is why in our culture, Christianity is suspect. Because what do we believe in? We believe in a big story. We believe in the big God story, which defines reality. And we accept it to be true and it transformative. So you can see how this might affect the vertical reality. Here's the third component of postmodern mood. Power is knowledge. So they would say, many would say, that there is an unbreakable link between power and between knowledge. And knowledge is not neutral. Knowledge is always developed within systems or networks of power. And so, those who are in power are those who get to determine what the truth is. Governments, school, religion, scientific communities, all of these powers determine what truth is. And people, therefore, within and under those powers are conditioned and are conformed to those societies' views. And what the system does, it makes those who resist the power into deviants. But the truth is, those are in fact the heroes of the story. Those are in fact those who are on the right side of history. Those are the true ones. Those are the ones who know the truth. So if you've heard the term out there called critical theory uh, being used in the media, this is often what it's referring to. So it gives you a little bit of context of what that's all about. Now, this morning, my goal is not to slam postmodern thought. It does have its challenges, okay? And, and there are people who can take postmodern thought to its extremes. But I, I will say this this morning. We can actually learn a lot from postmodern thought. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we can make postmodern thought our ally. That's another teaching series for another time. But I just want to make that clear. In case you're listening at home and, and, and thinking I'm, I'm slamming postmodern thought, I'm not. All I'm trying to do this morning is simply frame it for us. The point is that secularism and postmodernism together have contributed to the flattening of the vertical in our society. And out of this, expressive individualism has emerged. And I think if you want an example of just how widespread this worldview is, let's just look at some excerpts from a song that many of you may in fact be familiar with. Here's the song. The wind is howling like this swirling storm inside, okay? Couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I tried. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you have to be. Conceal it. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. You see? This identity is just waiting to come out, but it's being pushed down. Next one. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let's go to the bridge before we get to the chorus that many of you know. My power, you see that word? Flurries through the air and to the ground. My soul is spiraling in frozen fractals all around. And one thought crystallizes like an icy blast. I'm never going back. The past is the past. We have here an identity within myself that is waiting to come out, but is being controlled by power. And what do I say to that? Here we go. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. You know this song, Disney? Uh, Some of you with parents know it. Some of you are like, no, I don't watch Disney. Okay. But, okay. This is one of the most popular children's songs of the last three or four years. It is incredibly popular. Little girls in princess dresses are singing this song the world over. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me any way. What's it saying? It's saying don't fight the storm inside of you that you're feeling, that you're intuiting. It's trying to get out. Slam the door on those power structures or social pressures. Be who you want to be. It's time to break free. Elsa. Elsa, you do you. Follow your heart. Live your truth. Now, I realize I may have just ruined this song for some parents in the audience this morning who are watching. I know, I get it, okay? You would have never guessed that this is a ballad for expressive individualism. But that's what this song is all about. It's all about self-identity emerging. Okay, now. How do we reconstruct the vertical self well as it turns out the Bible does have a big God story and it's a meta narrative that pushes us towards a transcendent big picture view of God and reality and this actually forms the foundation of human identity for everyone let me ask you this question this morning are you looking for meaning and significance Are you struggling to find identity in this mixed-up world? See, understanding the big God story is like an anchor to our hearts. It reconnects us with our ultimate purpose and our ultimate identity as people. John Calvin put it this way. He said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. There's an intrinsic link between your understanding of who God is and your own personal identity. In other words, it's hard to know yourself without knowing the one who created you in his image. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time together this morning is simply to build the foundation for this vertical access, just as a launch into this series, okay? Who are you? The Bible would say that you are a human being. What is a human being? Well, this is actually found in the first two chapters, Well, the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. But we're just going to look at the first two this morning. And I just want to read a text for you from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Here's what it says. Then God said, so God has created everything up to this point, the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the mountains and day and night and water up above and all of that, okay? Sixth day, he gets to humanity. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of God. So, what is a human being? Well, let me briefly walk through five factors of human identity as a foundation on which we can build our identity. Here's the first one. Number one, people are physical. So God created humanity, that's clear in Genesis chapter 1. You get to Genesis chapter 2, it talks about how he did it. When God created the first man, he formed him from the dust of the ground, right? So he was a physical being in a physical universe. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Here's the thing. You are a physical body. Your body matters to God. Now, you may or may not like certain aspects of your body. Welcome to the human race. As a matter of fact, some of the most beautiful people in the world will tell you they know every blot and blemish on their own bodies. They don't like their own bodies, so you are not alone in this. You might be frustrated with the way your body is behaving sometimes, but God created your body, and it is good. And keep in mind this you are not merely your body. Your body is not the summary of your identity. It's part of it. Which brings us to the second factor. You people are spiritual. In that same verse in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it reveals that you are spiritual. It says, God breathed life into the physical body of the first human, and he became a living creature. So, So we are living beings animated by the breath of God, by the mystery of life. What a tremendous gift. You are a living being. And with that breath of life, it says in the Bible that came our inner person, our spirit. And and of course, this is spelled out in greater detail in the New Testament where it talks about the spirit. And and we have a spirit within us that can relate to God because God himself is spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that the spirit is more important than the body, which some people would do. We would call them a Platonist. And there was a whole heresy about that in the third century. But anyway, uh, your body isn't some add-on feature that you're trying to get rid of, that one day you're hoping to dispose of we are unified bodies we are bodies and we are spirits we are embodied people forever who will one day have resurrected bodies okay so both of those matter both of those are good you are a body and you're a spirit third people are social what did god say of adam in, in, in genesis two eighteen? he says it's not good for man to be alone and so because of this what did he do he created a partner for him he created a woman and then what did he say to them? He says, hey, be fruitful and multiply. Put on some berry White, go on off, and make a whole bunch of more human beings. That's what you need to do, right? Why? Because we are social beings. We're not just autonomous individuals making up our identities on our own. We are social. We are made for relationship. Do You know, your, your social identity is always defined in relationship to other people. Do you know how much of your identity is defined in terms of your relationships you might be a son you might be a daughter you might be a brother you might be a sister a father a mother a grandma a grandpa you might be a colleague a friend a husband a wife a boss so much of your identity as a human being is social fourth people are sexual this means two things first of all it says that god made two distinct biological sexes male and female Both of these were made in the image of God. Not just men, men and women. Genesis 1.27 makes this clear. God is not a chauvinist. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The term man there is just an umbrella statement for humanity. Male and female, both created in the image of God. And what this means is that the distinctions between men and women were never intended to be in conflict Rather, they were meant to be celebrated and they were meant to complement each other. But not only are we different sexes, we are also sexual beings. Genesis chapter 2, near the end, you get to the story. Adam and Eve complete one another through sexual intimacy. And what we know from that then is that sex was God's idea in the first place. It was his good gift that was given to us that was intended to be enjoyed within the context of a covenant relationship. Finally, And this is the most important part for us today, and it's our landing strip. People are special. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you come to understand that humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. Adam arrives on the sixth day after everything else has been created. He gets to name all of the creatures. He's placed in charge of all the other creatures. And he is the only creature that it says was created in the image and likeness of God. Humanity is special. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? It means a few things. First of all, it means that you were made for relationship with God. God walked in the garden with humanity. We are connected to God relationally in a special way. Second, it means that we were made to point to God. In other words, we are to reflect God's image to the world. We were created essentially as God's priests on the planet, and we point people to God by the way that we live and by the way that we love. Third, it means that we were made to represent God. We were given authority to rule over creation on God's behalf. Not to abuse that rule and to destroy it, but rather to create, to cultivate, to build, to nurture. This is what it means to be A human being made in God's image so we are special and what this means to you this morning and I hope you hear this you are valuable you have ultimate purpose you have ultimate worth and meaning you don't have to seek that on the horizontal plane you don't have to try and find it inside of yourself When God created humanity, he declared it was good. When he finished everything, he stepped back and he says, hey, it's very good. And that includes you. You are good because God has created you as good. That is your fundamental base identity as a human being. This is the reason why we pursue social justice. This is why we stick up for people who are marginalized. This is why we abolish slavery. This is why we treat people with dignity and respect. This is why we seek reconciliation. This is why we seek to treat other people the way we want to be treated. It's because of this fundamental belief as believers in Christ who are part of the big God story that every human being has value Every human being has dignity. Every human being needs to be treated as somebody created in the image of God. And and if you've ever doubted the value that God places on you, remember this. God has made every effort to minimize and bridge the gap between himself and you. He was literally dying to save you. And the cross reminds us just how valuable we are. So... Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with your identity. Well, get in line. That's what it means to be a human being. There will be different seasons in your life where you're going to struggle with your identity in so many different ways. Maybe you're just living outside of your parents' home now and you're just kind of figuring out for yourself who you are and trying to discover that. Maybe you're in high school and you find yourself just surrounded by so many different opinions of who you're supposed to be. Maybe you're in midlife like myself and you're, you're wondering what does the second half look like and you're going through a little bit of a midlife crisis. Maybe you find yourself aging. Your body is, body is fighting against you and the things that you used to love and the things you used to want to do you can no longer do anymore. Identity is something that we all struggle with. So you have questions about your significance and your purpose. Let me ask you today, what if, what if, This became your starting point for reshaping your identity now, for reconstructing your identity for the next step in your life. And what if you began reconstructing your identity based on how God created you and how God sees you? Let me just read to you from Psalm 139. This is God's word to you this morning. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well God formed you inside of your mom He knitted you together like a brilliant beautiful work of art a tapestry and God declares over you today You are wonderful You're wonderful Without exclusion of anyone in this room or anyone who's joining us online, you are wonderful. I wonder if we could just pause for a second and and insert your name in this phrase this morning. Blank is fearfully and wonderfully made. Could you say that to yourself this morning? Insert your name and fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm going to give you a moment just to do that this morning. My hope is is that each and every one of us today would be able to rebuild and inflate the vertical axis to reconstruct our identity in the image of God today and maybe you needed to hear that this morning I know I did let's pray together Father it's just so easy for us to get conformed to the image of this world with all of its um, flow of ideas and thoughts, and to see ourselves, Lord, um, in a way that was never intended for us. I thank you, God, that you want to renew our minds through Christ Jesus and through the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. God, would you rebuild our identities? Would you help us to see us as you see us? God, for anyone this morning who's just struggling with identity, I, I pray peace over them through Christ Jesus. I pray truth in their hearts and in their lives. I pray eyes wide open that they might see you the way that that you see you. They may see themselves the way that you see them. This is our prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you are for us and that you are good. And that because of you, we are good creations. And thank you that through Christ Jesus... You are transforming us more and more to become like you. We give you praise and thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton, and you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website.